0: Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Sonia Abraham, who's a clinical senior lecturer in rheumatology and general internal medicine at Imperial College in London. Um, We're going to speak both about her research in rheumatology, which covers psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and and a number of other immune-mediated conditions where she works on biomarkers, including the microbiome, and how they affect these conditions. We're also going to speak about uh, BAME and representation of medical research. This is Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups. Um, we're going to cover both COVID-19 as well as clinical trials more generally and some of the challenges around representativeness in clinical trials. Um, so with that intro, thanks so much, Sonia, for taking time to be part of the podcast.
1: Oh, uh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I was wondering if we could just start with um, an explanation of what clinical research is. Um, For those who are not familiar, you spend a lot of time running um, and coordinating clinical trials and and clinical research and the science that goes into them. So I wonder if we could just start there.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, clinical research is really the mechanisms by which we understand human physiology and um, where the physiology goes wrong and where diseases occur. And so clinical research can involve taking samples and it's research that's done in humans. And it's understanding how diseases might occur, how they evolve, how they change over time. And that can be as simple as taking um, blood tests or biopsies or doing sort of tests such as walk tests or um, hand dexterity tests, depending on the disease of interest. And. Um, part of this also relates to the development of new therapeutics, and I think never more than now has clinical research been um, so important. Because I mean, sadly, with the advent of COVID nineteen, um, you know, what we want are things that prevent the disease, which um, can be treated with the disease, and now clinical research has just sort of accelerated.
0: From your point of view, what what do the statistics say about BAME representation in clinical research and and what's the problem here? What's the scale of the problem and and what's the result of the lack of representation?
1: Okay, so I mean, I I would say it's not just about um, COVID-19. I mean, there is a disproportionate from from the mortality data that was um, collated via Public Health England, and the governments, that there is a disproportionate number of people from black and Asian and other ethnic minorities that seem to be affected either more severely or sadly sort of the mortality rate is higher in that group. Now, we don't know exactly why. And there are probably both genetic reasons, alterations in you know, the background ethnicity and possibly also environmental factors. And being able to understand that is a work in progress. I think what's important is in clinical research, traditionally, um, it has not been a requirement to, to delineate the ethnicity makeup of um, people involved in clinical trials. And so I think now this has changed the paradigm for the collection of data in trials, and it will be important going forward that this data is collated and this has sort of lots of social implications because you know what is the difference between your heritage your ethnicity and how you identify yourself one's cultural one's genetic and I think also with some of the um, sort of UK consensus data some of the granularity about the slight difference in variations of ethnicities isn't necessarily um, captured. So now more than ever, is it important that that data is captured? But additionally, and I think going forward, when clinical research um, questions and hypotheses are formulated and protocols written, there needs to be consideration given to how it applies to the wider population. And yeah, ethnicity is part of that.
0: Is there any um, likelihood that this will be mandated either by the FDA, the EMA May the government, uh, UK government, right. yeah. or, or yeah. otherwise?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So fantastic question. Yeah. Going forward, and and it's sad that COVID nineteen has precipitated this. But again, yes, I think going forward, the regulatory agencies will probably mandate this. Historically, if a disease primarily affected a certain ethnicity and population. You know, it may well be that they were the ones that are targeted or you had subpopulations, but it was never mandated how many of each group or how well it was captured. Um, Going forward, I think, well, it will be. And within the UK and the National Institute of Health Research, there are work streams going on to um, really look at how well that that's captured. But even more, um, it's not just about capturing, it's also... The accessibility and availability of these trials to these um, other groups. One of the difficulties is that there have been, in terms of inclusion, um, the information sheets, the adverts were all in the primary language of English. Right. So if people um, did not have English as their primary language, then they wouldn't necessarily have access to the information to partake in clinical trials. And then I think additionally, there are probably sort of cultural variations about um, people's comfort in undertaking clinical trials, thinking it might be just sort of human experiments. But, you know, these are highly regulated processes. Um, So I think there's there's a case that needs to be made socially about the education of what clinical trials are and ensuring that that education um, is available to all groups, despite what um, primary um, language they are. But also, in terms of the procedures within the trial protocol, the um, principal investigators, the chief investigators, the sponsors, need to look at the sensitivities that may impact in um, other ethnicities taking part as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. From your point of view is the main the main risk of not doing this right is is that ultimately the medicines that make it through a clinical trial may not actually work for everyone or may not be safe for everyone that That seems to me like a like a big issue are there are there other issues besides um, besides that Is it that diagnosis also suffers because people might have you know might present in different ways um, or what what are the what are the impacts of this research not being um, not being done in a representative way
1: yeah so all the things that you you mentioned and the fact is that there should be equality of access to to healthcare and medicines um, and this is a big thing you know throughout the world but actually there should be as equal access to clinical research and again it goes to your thing if they're are um, novel therapeutics that being trialed um, the applicability to the wider population within that country needs to be determined. Um, one of the very early examples for this was when the development for blood pressure antihypertensives, um, ACE inhibitors, which now are prescribed as standard therapy. But what we know is that um, the black ethnic groups, they don't um, have the, they have a polymorphism in their ACE receptor. So right. inhibitors, wouldn't work in them so there are probably more and more subtleties of other drugs that we use or don't use and there may be some drugs that work better in some groups than others
0: do you have any any impression of of how much there is like that that we don't know out there when when people look retrospectively at data from clinical trials is it is it clear that there's a huge amount of variation that's that's simply not being captured or or you know what's the are we going to have to essentially rewrite the, you know, rewrite the book on a number of really common therapies as as more representative studies or have run or or what do you think?
1: Yeah, so I suppose there's two parts of this. So there are drugs that have been um licensed, um, and some who've been licensed for a few years, some for decades. And so there probably were sort of signals from prescribers and um there, but actually to do it in a robust way there probably is a need to potentially look at real world evidence of those prescribed and the actual effects. As far as I know, that hasn't really been done in depth, apart from sort of few academics with an interest in that. I mean, within my own specialty, within um, rheumatology, you know, I don't know of any literature that's actually looked at differences in outcomes um, dependent on ethnicity. And one of the problems is we don't know, we, we don't capture the data of that ethnicity when it's prescribed, hence you can't do the long-term follow-up. And r- new, new drugs in development, yeah, I, I think it's going to have to be at least thought about and mandated or a reason why it shouldn't apply to look at differentials.
0: Why aren't people collecting data about ethnicity? Do you, is, is there any good explanation as to why it is or is it people just haven't, you know, haven't given it the thought until relatively recently?
1: I think the issue has always probably been there but the urgency and you know the media has a lot to play with that so i think that's where it's really come um to a head really i suppose I mean, we we could also think about sort of whole sort of sociological factors in that you know, 50 60 70 80 90 years ago Yeah. Again, there were therapeutics, probably not placebo randomized controlled trials, but the pockets and the groups of ethnicities was relatively more homogenous within a treatment group. And now with global travel, global migration, people go here and there, it's, it's probably different now. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that And I think this has been known about for decades, is the lack of access and inclusion of of ethnicities in clinical trials and the barriers to that. So I think, and again, I think this is going to be a new branch of research is that if you look at all the trials, you know how many of them actually have information sheets that have been translated to the local population where you're undertaking the trial. And I think what's also interesting is there are sort of first attempts particularly in the UK recently, where they've, you know, via the NIHR, which is fantastic, looking at translating a number of trials to um, the most common ethnic languages. But the limitation is there are some pockets where some of those um, languages don't apply. So if I look at our region, so I'm a lead within northwest London, and in that area there's quite a large proportion of people from the Philippines, large sort of Persian population. So a lot of the trials haven't been, as yet, translated into those language. And, and we see you know, local data that those groups have been impacted, although it's a government level that's not seen because it's collated data right. at the UK. You know, there are local pockets of subpopulations that have been affected.
0: You mentioned the challenges around making people aware of clinical research and, and education and outreach, how do you, how is that done today, and and how do you think that needs to change? I mean, the the problem you just described makes it seem like we need more more bottom up and and kind of grassroots way of getting the word out about the research, rather than today what's a relatively top down procedure where the materials are written, somebody signs them off, and then they're they're kind of just, just put out there. Could you just explain how it's done today and, and maybe how you see um, that it needs to improve in the future?
1: No, that's fantastic. And I think you're spot on. It has been very much a top-down approach. I mean, I'd be interested in, you know, how many PIs from the, the makeup of the actual ethnicities of principal investigators, because, you know, yeah, um, perhaps that's different and then those those subtleties may not sort of come out during the protocols, so again, I'm in agreement that that we need to look more at a at a local population level as well and bottom up and it's not just about the healthcare organizations they need to probably link in with local um, groups and the social sector um, with local governments, and you know in our sector we're, we're also sort of linking now with Health watch which are really the sort of patient voices and those lay voices to really try and deeply understand, you know, how much of an opportunity have they had to link in with trials? Have they heard about trials? Right. What are their barriers of not hearing about it? Or why do they not want to take part if they do hear about it?
0: What, and what so, is Healthwatch? Uh, I haven't, I haven't come across Healthwatch.
1: Okay. So um, it's, um, so, so there are a number of organizations that are sort of set up within the UK that work with local Governments to really be the voice of the public with relation to health right. in their area. So, yeah, it, it's part of the sort of social um, sort of care act. Yeah, with relation oh. to health.
0: That's excellent. I, I didn't realize that exists. It's great that it does because um, it, it's hard to do some of these things from a top down. You really need that local representation to make these things work, don't you?
1: Yeah, I think that's very important. But I think the other thing that actually could be harnessed more is that is that of the power of social media now again you know there have been lots of sort of regulatory challenges with information technology and social media which in some ways has now transcended again because of um, COVID-19 and so some of those things have been relaxed but actually it gets messages out there more and we know that Actually, one thing that is universal is the use of social media, no matter what your ethnicity, <laughs> so perhaps sort of being able to listen within notes of, of social media, but again, you need resources to be able to do that and, and also done in a in an appropriate manner and also you know receiving feedback via social media I and mean, we do know now that a lot of recruitment for clinical trials. Is being used by social media, subject to ethical approval. So, could this be another way of reaching um, a bigger group?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like you need to you need to meet people where they are, right, and not uh, not force people to fit into a, a system that was built uh, a very long time ago that that wasn't necessarily built for the world we live in today.
1: Exactly, and I think I mean I think there probably uh, will be. Well, there is in process. You know, toolkits for when clinical trials are designed this is you know particularly by the NIHR in the UK of ensuring that certain tick box things have occurred and I think it in the future it will involve you know consultations with the local population and you know things um what's the word Uh, and being open to thoughts from the various ethnicities
0: yeah, that's excellent. Have you have you been working directly on any COVID nineteen related trials? Um, have you been sort of pulled into some of the some of the urgent studies?
1: I haven't directly. I haven't taken on any PI roles, um, but I know locally that you know we, we have contributed um, to a number of both interventional trials and also those in primary care, and I've helped to sort of try and facilitate that. So some of the um, primary care ones where Almost early early treatment, and you know what was obvious from that is that there weren't really translations in that. So that's being rectified now. So having a sort of different eye and a bird's eye view and a wide angle view of what's going on with the trials. And I think to date, it's not absolutely clear how many patients from the various ethnicities were included in those trials. So that's going to be a piece of work that we're undertaking locally. Oh, that's
0: I, we had, um, I had uh, Chris Wigley and Richard Scott from Genomics England on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And, and I was really glad to hear that from the very beginning, they have a large genome sequencing mm. project that's underway. Mm. And, and they're, they're planning to be representative across the UK in terms of ethnicity and, um, and gender and um, uh, you know postcode and all of the important demographic variables in that study from the get-go, which I thought was really good. Mm. Leadership, because um you know it's uh, you hate to spend all this time and do all this analysis, not collect the data, and then look back and realize the the study really doesn 't represent the the country at all but just a small smaller group of people that were um you know that were easiest to get to because of language or some of the other reasons you've mentioned
1: yes i mean I mean some of this sort of came to the front where you know actually on death certifications ethnicity is not recorded and you know, there was a historical reason probably for this, that it really was not that variable. I mean, I don't know how long that, you know, it's a formal regulated document, the death certificate. Right. So a lot of data wasn't captured early on. So again, COVID has triggered, you know, re-looking at, you know, the the birth data, the, um, yeah, death data, uh, yeah, registry data and census data.
0: Yeah, well, um, I, and how it's I think captured. That- the the rate of um the rate of death in in BAME groups in one of the studies that i read was was almost two and a half times the population so it was like 30% of the deaths despite being 10 to 10 to 12% of the population which is is really a, a terrible statistic and and right. you know to not know why and and to to kind of have only more questions of is it Is it genetics? Is it, um, you know, some, something to do with, uh, you know, is it being not caught early enough? There's, there's just so many questions that Mm. not have the ability to answer is, is, is really a problem.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. And actually that brings up another point really is that, you know, people who were sitting at home with symptoms, um, the differential sort of fear factor for going into hospital and seeking help. Um, yeah so absolutely i think that's had some implications as well
0: yeah well it's it is it's well documented that not everyone gets the same the same treatment in the in the hospital or, or the gp or or whatever so there's kind of deep societal challenges that that contribute to this as well aren't there
1: i mean i wouldn't say so much treatments and i think what is amazing and wonderful about the uk is that with the nhs that we have um people you know have access to treatment free at the point of care um, and, and they will get the same treatment no matter if you're a prince or if you're a pauper. Now I know that sort of healthcare system isn't there throughout the world it's something to be fantastically proud of um, so yeah. it, you know it wouldn't matter if you had insurance or not you would come in and you would go down a protocol for treatment to help support you.
0: Yeah, it is. When I speak to people back in the U.S., um, where I'm from, it's surprisingly difficult to um, to kind of articulate how how well the system does work over here. People can criticize parts of it, but if you look at the numbers, I think we in the U.S. about twice as much is spent per person for outcomes that are not as good here in the U.K. So it's kind of patently obvious that the, the system is is broken. But there doesn't seem to be the the will to fix it uh, for some
1: reason. I mean, one of the other things, I suppose, is the really sort of global sharing of data with the ethnicities. I mean, some of it wouldn't have been captured, but what there is. Right. So, you know, the potential to say, well, if you're an Indian living in the UK and the rates there compared to the Indian groups living in India or the Chinese population of the UK or states or whatever compared to the country of origin now that would also help sort of understand the genetics differentials potentially potentially um, but i think one of the things that's really drawn up is you know the careful acquisition of data and sadly it is not standardized Right, and it should be in a world where we've got all this technology we can talk here and it's yeah it's beyond belief that we, we can't standardize the way we capture data. And it's great. We have the WHO, which are fantastic, but it's a shame that they can't actually be in, in times like these with pandemics, how things have to occur and people have to abide by them unless there are exceptional circumstances.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's been a, it, there's, there's just been a incredible array of different, even if, if we take COVID as an example, ways of collecting data um, that it's, it's going to be a real challenge to analyze everything because everyone's collecting it and, and they've picked their own special way to do it. Um, and there's a thousand mm. projects that have, that have kicked off each analyzing it in, in a slightly different way.
1: Absolutely. And that is really worrying and scary. And I think, again, it goes back to the carefulness of, of clinical trials and slowly and carefully um, because traditionally they were a little slow but actually, it was all about being careful so that you could answer the scientific question um, in a very safe environment. Right. And it would take time. And as you said, now there's been an acceleration of all the trials. And if you have the word COVID-19 accelerates and it goes in. And again, you said it, it: it's the differential ways in data collected, the slight differentials in the protocols of inclusion and exclusion criteria. And what's happened is there's been accelerated publication and then one day drug and there's a certain drug I think everybody knows about is in and good. The other day, that drug is not good. And then the other day, maybe it actually might be good. And, yeah, it's I, I think that, that not it's not just the regulatory agencies. And I think, you know, some of them have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, in really helping to support the acceleration but it's it's looking scrutinizing on the investigators how they write their protocols and how they report and I think a responsibility also lies with the editors of high impact journals as well of what and how they report and you know we've seen retractions in some very um prestigious journals and yeah so, yeah. so so scrutiny really needs to be
0: there. I'm thinking of this, the Surgisphere debacle. And I think it was the Lancet uh, where yeah. some company that pro- that they claimed to have all this hospital data, but they wouldn't actually show anyone that it existed. And none of the hospitals um, ever remembered signing any agreements or working with them. And, and so it was quite possibly uh, all all kind of constructed just to create this high impact journal publication, which is, is unbelievable. If you think about it, but the, um, the, the journal to their credit did retract it fairly quickly, but sometimes the damage is done because the information yes. gets out there and in, in the media, yes. and there's no taking it back.
1: Yes. And then it impacted other clinical trials that were really trying to get the proper deer. And, and, you know, it's also a sort of testament and and it's, it upsets me that, you know, people, point the finger people blame and saying, Oh, well, that wasn't credible or this wasn't credible or this was doing this bad job. And they've been doing, and you know, in times like these, there is no point in pointing fingers and putting blame, you know, we try to make the best of it.
0: Absolutely. One, one thing that I want to ask you is we, we, as a, as a world right now, we're spending a lot of time talking about COVID-19, but a lot of your work is on immune mediated, um, especially inflammatory, disorders and and it's disorders like these these people are at higher risk of um, mortality from COVID-19 and it's more challenging to to conduct research because it's less safe for people to leave their homes it's a immune system compromising condition in, in many of these cases has that affected your work at all of you have you, um, you know, had to shift the way you do things in order to continue doing you you know, your important work in psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, enclosing spondylitis
1: and other. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's been an interesting journey really, because at the beginning and, you know, yes, as you said, the the group that we treat and it's not just inflammatory arthritis, but patients with connective tissue disease and lupus and people, it's their sort of immune modulators. And there was a big worry are these people going to be, So immunocompromised, they're more likely to get the infection. And if they get the infection, they're more likely to have a worse outcome. And really, nobody knew the answers. Um, And so things were sort of done. And again, sort of slightly differently in slightly different countries. But this was very much a sort of pragmatic clinical approach. And it was made sure that if people are on immunosuppressants, that they were shielded. They minimized their risk. Um, If they're on steroids to minimise their risks. But it's also impacted because there was lack of evidence, you know, the, the morbidity. Um, some of these patients have flares in their disease, Just, but right. the jury was out. Can you give them steroids? Can you not? Can you inject their joint with steroids? Can you not? And so there was a period where people were suffering, okay, not from mortality or for COVID, but from their inflammatory arthritis. Peace in terms of, I mean, I think... Was a great time to be a rheumatologist in terms of the therapies that were being trialed in COVID. A lot of them came from rheumatology. Um, But I think what's interesting is that rheumatologists didn't seem to be that consulted with some of these drugs that were licensed. So we see all the advent of using interleukin 6 receptor, hydroxychloroquine, which is a drug that's been around for extremely long period of time and used very successfully in some autoimmune conditions such as lupus and Sjogren's. And so I think there's one. that's one part. And then the sort of linking in with pharmacologists and also the pharmaceutical drug companies. And then what I've also seen is lots of biotechs, lots of new novel therapies that were going to be trials in autoimmune disease. They took those drugs and said, oh, there is some Circumstantial so evidence that it's been useful in that hyperinflammatory response in COVID 19. So let's trial it in there. And we've seen a lot of drugs fall by the wayside. And what's really right. interesting is, um, you know, probably for me, the best, most effective drug in inflammatory conditions for which Philip Hench got the Nobel Prize along with um, Stein and kendall in 1959 which was corticosteroids. so they showed that dexamethasone is particularly useful in that sort of inflammatory syndrome group i mean of course they have really bad side effects but it's interesting that some of the oldest drugs seem to be effective right. and some of the newer ones don't um to date
0: why is it that the drugs that were originally used in rheumatology are likely to be effective is it is it against this later onset cytokine storm where the, the body, um, you know, g- goes into immune overload? Uh, yes. Is that, is that yes. what it is, right?
1: Yes, yes. And, and, and so, yeah, that hyperinflammatory response, although there are some thoughts that the way hydroxychloroquine may work is that it also may stop the, the virus actually infecting the cells as well, if given early enough. And I think that's the problem. It's, you know, at what stage are certain drugs the best to be used? And what's happened is all of the drugs are used in hospital when the patients are probably coming quite late and sort of looking at using it earlier. So I mean and it also sort of I mean a lot of sort of questions or philosophical questions also come out of this. Is it use is it better to use drugs that have been around for a long time? We know their safety profiles and trialing those or trialing brand new drugs where we know their mechanisms of action, um, but we don't know their safety profiles in COVID-19. I'm not saying which one is right or the one is wrong, but yeah, it's a good reflection.
0: Yeah, and and I think the other thing to consider with both of those is how they end up being priced. I, I assume with something like dexamethasone, it's off patent and everyone in the entire world can make it. And so, anyone who needs it will be able to get a dose. Whereas the remdesivir is a new drug, um, and there, you know, I think they had originally planned to price it around three thousand pounds a dose. I, I have no idea whether that's reasonable or not. But there's more. There's always more debate in how you price it if something is is new and under patent than if it's uh, tried and true, right?
1: Well, yes, but I, I mean, you know, and I appreciate, you know, that costs have to be. But actually, there's this ethical dilemma that really it should, you know, drugs need to be accessible for things like this. I mean, you know, sure, remdesivir and they may price it at that, but you know, it really has had accelerated, you know, if it comes out, it will have accelerated status to be licensed. So the timings would be a lot less than if it had to come for other diseases. Yeah. Um, but I think what was interesting, and I read this nearly, early on, and it was very naughty, but good on the FDA to have reviewed that, was I think one company that was producing hydroxychloroquine actually increased the price of it during COVID-19, which was, I mean how could people do that no. so yeah that's come back down now but there was a transient time where they did that so the people profiteering from tragedy is really unacceptable particularly health
0: <laughs> tragedies absolutely is, um, is it hydroxychloroquine that is that is commonly used in lupus because there i know there was a yeah. concern at one point that um the u.s was stockpiling it and that people may not be able to to actually get the drugs that they needed to manage their their lupus on a day-to-day basis
1: absolutely and i think the governments were aware of that and i think i mean i know certainly in the uk and i'm pretty sure in the us as well and hopefully other governments that when this was alerted um that they did ensure that you know there was a decent supply for for the diseases that they're licensed in or prescribed in as well as the sort of clinical trials, but there was a period where, and this is sort of the off target social impact is that suddenly people were getting prescriptions instead of two or three months getting six month prescriptions. So suddenly people, you know, potentially stockpiling within their own um, houses. And I'm not saying what's right or wrong. It's just the observations. So that was panic mode. And I think, I mean, there's again, you know, the availability of medicines and other things, because I think countries are now realizing how much reliance there are on other places right. to bring in at import and export, um, not just on drugs, but other things as well. So, yeah, it will be interesting how things evolve over the next 10 years to ensure that there is a you know, readily available stock of essential things.
0: How does it actually work in, in the inflammatory diseases that you cover what what roughly speaking what proportion of people are taking um one of the older more tried and true um kind of uh treatments versus some of the new injectable biologics have you seen that change a lot in the last um five or ten years and i'm just interested in where you see the future um of these kind of very 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 challenging to treat and um and, you know, the, the, they affect quality of life in some people very dramatically um, as a result of, of the, so, the challenge to treat them.
1: So, I mean, I would say over the last sort of 15, 20 years, you know, the advent of biologics in um, autoimmune inflammatory diseases has really sort of transformed the whole environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so people almost, you know, can live generally normal lives because of the biologics. And what's probably changed in the last sort of four or five years is the advent of biosimilars because biologics were extremely expensive. You know, they were around sort of between, well, in the UK, between eight to 15,000 a year. I think in the States, it was considerably more, you know, about twenty forty thousand. 40,000. So biosimilars are now come. And so they're offering drugs with the same target um, for either 50% less or 60, 70% less. And more and more biosimilars are coming. So it probably will be that patients are going to have more and more access to the drugs because there's possibly less impact on the economy.
0: Right. For people who aren't familiar with the term, and I just want to make sure I get it right as well, the biologics are large, complex molecules in contrast to small molecules that are, yeah. you know, where the earlier generation of therapies. Uh, biosimilar is essentially something that is. Uh, similar right to the biologic it's not exactly the same structure so it's not you know it's it, there's no risk of kind of infringing on someone's patent but essentially the biosimilar molecule does does roughly the same thing and the clinical trials often are just showing non-inferiority right so they're they're absolutely. not worse than than what exists out there absolutely we've covered a lot of ground here and and I think we've been going for almost an hour now so I was wondering if we could just close off here with your view you've talked about how biologics and immune inflammatory diseases are um you know have been transformative is is there a next wave of therapies what is what's coming next here or or do you think the age of the the biosimilars is going to be the next um the next big age and and there may not be a step change in effective treatments for for a little while
1: yeah, so I think there's sort of two ways of looking at it. I think there'll be one where um, you're treated very early. So if you treat very early, maybe you can switch off that perturbation. We still haven't got treatments for that, but, you know, that's that's one way of looking at it. I think treatments are evolving and it's interesting because, again, you know, steroids did transform the landscape back in the day in the 50s and 60s for people affected with arthritis, then sort of the advent of methotrexate, the TNFs. And so all those drugs, um, the oral drugs, so methotrexate, sulfazalazine, hydroxychloroquine, the steroids, they affect lots and lots of um, inflammatory proteins. Then the anti-TNFs and the biologics came, so you have anti-interleukin-6, effects on T cells, interleukin-17s. They affect one cytokine directly by uh, um antibody so they they shut off and bring down that one hyperinflammatory uh, protein which may have other effects on some of the other proteins but now what we see is there are new drugs that are coming out that are having that sort of wider implication on lots and lots of cytokines so it's going back to their sort of steroid days which i think is interesting,
0: interesting. Um,
1: and yeah i mean one of the things with um, inflammatory um, arthritis is they're not monogenic because there is a big advent of gene therapies and we see transformations say in hemophilia, but, you know, if we're able to understand more and more about them, are there ways of modulating some of the genes causing the inflammation? But I mean, you know, I think we're looking 10, 20, 30 years down. So yeah hopefully we'll be speaking in 10 20 years absolutely there may be transformations and then going back to something that obviously is of interest in me and that is the microbiome is you know we see potentially a future where it will be a combination of treatments but also your microbiome environment now whether this will be treated with food supplements to alter your microbiome or actual capsules or other things that that you know reset the the proportions of the pro-inflammatory the good bacteria or to not so good bacteria um i think that's possibly going to be a real reality and i think that's probably going to be a lot sooner than say gene therapies in autoimmune um, inflammatory arthritis so yeah i can see seven to ten years it could be we already know in the devastating diarrhea clostridium difficile that you know microbiome therapy and fecal transplants which don't sound very appealing but you know they've been approved
0: right and incredibly effective how 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 would the microbiome work in in something like ankylosing spondylitis or or ra or psoriatic arthritis does the microbiome play a role in because my understanding in ankylosing spondylitis is the there's kind of spinal fusion and, and kind of deep inflammation in the spine is, is there, is the microbiome playing a role there potentially?
1: Yeah. And it's thought to be potentially originating from intestinal microbiome. So um, the bacteria in the gut, and we know, you know, from inflammatory bowel disease studies that there are altered microbiome. We know comparisons across looking at patients with psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid and ankylosing spondylitis, that there are alterations in the proportions compared to, say, normal um, healthy volunteers. And you know, our research is really focusing on trying to understand what the differences are. But it's more than, and what's been published to date is what you observe at that right. moment. Yeah. But actually, it's not about just the bacteria. It's about the interaction of the foods we take that alter the bacteria and how stable this is over a period of time and what the chemicals those bacteria say with the food interactions um, produce that then affect the immune cells and then what happens to those immune cells so what we really and what we're doing is really looking at that integrated approach of what happens when you compare people their diets their microbiome what chemicals are being produced and how does that affect the um, sort of genetic expressions in pro-inflammatory cytokines in the immune cells?
0: Incredible. I, it really is a complex system, isn't it? You have to look at it with that integrated approach.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd just like to say thank you so much for taking the time. I I always learn an incredible amount speaking with you. So so thank you. I I um I think we covered a tremendous amount of ground today around representativeness in clinical trials. and and some of your work in immune mediated inflammatory disease and, and arthritis. So thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, it's, it's sunny where I am here. Hopefully it is where you are and you can uh, get outside and enjoy, enjoy some of the nice weather.
1: Thank you. Are you based in the UK? Yes. In Cambridge. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Nice. Um, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds very sunny, the accent. Um, <laughs> um yeah, no, based in, uh, Surrey. In which one. So it's, cell cast, but it's not raining so that's not too bad
0: excellent but that's thank you yeah no it.
1: it's been a real pleasure it really is it's great yeah discussing with you thank you
0: great thank you
1: as well